we have been the last few weeks traveling through the book of Matthew. And we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5 today in a portion of scripture that is called the Beatitudes. You, you might be familiar with, uh, with that passage because it's the blessed passage. Blessed are this and blessed are that. And, and uh, blessed looks like blessed. And so I wasn't sure how to, uh, how, how does that work? How is it pronounced two different ways? And I should have asked, I've got a high school English teacher in the back row. I should have asked her, but I looked it up. So if, if Google's wrong, um, Pam can correct me later. Um, but blessed is a word that talks about, you know, obviously you understand the meaning of that. And it's something that's, that happens to us, happened in the past. But blessed is a word when it is, descri- is the correct pronunciation when it's described as an adjective and that God is doing. Blessed is an adjective that God is doing. And I want you to hear the words of Jesus today as he talks about that. It's in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1. I'd invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel this morning. Matthew chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up to the mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, being Jesus, said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God given for the people of God, and we respond together, thanks be to God can be seated. Some years ago, there was an an article published in the newspaper. um, I think it was, uh, well, I have to look up what newspaper it was, but the title of it was, How Do You Measure Up as a Man? And the article has did some extensive research on on how do you measure up as a man? How how do we as 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 a people, as a culture, define the measuring up of a man? Um, And it was conducted using 20th century standards for measuring a man. Now, I don't know about you, I'm still struggling a little bit that the 20th century is now 20 years behind us. But I thought the criteria was interesting. So I thought I'd list it this morning, and you can kind of, guys, you can kind of judge how, how do you measure up based on this newspaper article. The first one is you measure a man by his ability to make and conserve, I, that's important, money. Second, the cost style and the age of his car. Three, how much hair he has. Now, this one, I've just got to pause for a second, because it didn't really go into, does this mean you're more of a man if you've got long hair, or you're more of a man if you have no hair? I'm going to let you decide. I'm going to let you look in the mirror, make the decision for yourself. Five, the job he holds and how successful he is at it. Six, what sports he likes. And I read that one, I, I thought, a couple weeks ago, I was with Harley and a couple of his friends. And uh, we were driving along, and one of the friends asked me, said, uh, hey, did you play any high school sports? And I said, yeah, I played a couple. And they said, well, what'd you play? And I said, well, I was a four-year letterman in tennis. And one of the boys said, yeah, did you play any high school sports? Um, 
I don't think I'd measure up on that list. So uh, seven, how many clubs he belongs to, and eight, his aggressiveness and his reliability. Now, Jesus Christ once set down eight principles for how to measure a person. His, his standard is in stark contrast to this newspaper article. There would appear that there is a wide gulf between um, what the culture dis- defines as successful and what God sees as successful. Here's what happened. Jesus has started his ministry. It is gaining in popularity. Large crowds are gathering. He has picked his disciples. And, and there on the quiet rolling hills of northern Israel by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus delivers this sermon to the multitude. There are acres and acres of faces that are there. The crowd represents this cross-section of humanity, old and young and, and rich and poor, and those who are successful and those who aren't. It's a cross-section of the world. And yet as different as they were, Jesus understood that they were all on the same quest. They were all seeking the same thing. They all wanted some form of happiness in their life, which is a little like us. Isn't that what we want for ourselves? Isn't that what we ultimately want for our children? Happiness. The problem is, is that we really don't grasp the true nature of happiness. And because of that, it's always eluding us. You see, we think that happiness somehow, culture tells us that happiness somehow is, has to do with our circumstance, has to do with our outer circumstance. We think that, that truly how you measure a person is achieved by their outer success. So our cultural beatitudes read, blessed is the man who makes a fortune. Blessed is he who earns six figures. Happy is the man who has a palace in the city and a summer mansion in the mountains. Blessed is he who has won the applause of his peers. Blessed is the one who is recognized as a star of society. And the list goes on and on and on. But on this special day, Jesus shared with the disciples and indeed with all of history that this concept of happiness is built on a foundation of sand if that is where you're going to place all of your hope. Happiness is not based on what we have. True happiness is based on who we are. Happiness doesn't depend on the kind of house you live in. Happiness depends on those who live in the house. It's not the kind of clothes you wear. It's the person who wears the clothes. That's important to understand as you look at the scripture that Jesus, Jesus doesn't give these beatitudes. And, and beatitude literally means happy or, or blessing. He's not giving these beatitudes to the crowd. The scripture was clear about it. I don't know if you caught it. Let me read it to you again. It says, and seeing the multitude... He, Jesus, goes up the mountain, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Who? The disciples. Indeed, the Sermon on the Mount has been often called the ordination service for the disciples. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he just give the Beatitudes to the crowd and let them come to their own conclusion? I think it is the simple reason that in order to, to really understand the teachings of Christ, you have to know him. It said another way, unless you have a relationship with God, the Beatitudes are crazy. Unless you have a real relationship with God, the Beatitudes are, are ludicrous. They fly in the face of everything that the world teaches us. The problem is that so often we tend to put the cart before the horse. We, we tend to say, if, we will, if we'll just you know, learn the teaching and, and hope the teaching will change us, and if we just teach this teaching to a whole bunch of other people, maybe that will change them. But we forget that it is God that does the changing. It is God by the Holy Spirit who does the changing. And once we have experienced the change in relationship with God, it's then that we become a people who live out the teachings. So the Sermon on the Mount 
is the pattern of living for those who call themselves followers of Jesus. So with that in mind, I want to focus on two standards of living that Jesus talks about today. Um, I looked at the list. It's long. And I thought there is no way that I'm going to get through all of that and do it justice. So I just want to start at the beginning. We're just going to look at the first two today. Jesus began by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus mean by that? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Now, Luke, the gospel writer, uh, states this uh, beatitude a little differently. He writes, blessed are you poor. So that's where we're presented with a problem. Because those with wealth can say, Jesus isn't talking about money. He's talking about spiritual poverty. And those who are poor can say, oh, no, he's talking about financial poverty. Thus, the rich can thank Matthew and the poor can thank Luke. And both can say, he has blessed me. So which group is right? Chances are neither of them. For that's exactly the attitude of self-praise and self-justification that robs a person for their need of the kingdom of God. When one says, I don't need to be poor in things because I'm poor in spirit, and another says, I don't need to be poor in spirit because I'm poor in things, they are saying the same thing in unison. I don't need. And we can never receive a Savior unless we come to that point in our life in which we recognize We need one. It is true that it's easier for a poor man to recognize that he has need than a rich man, but it is neither wealth nor poverty that keeps someone out of the kingdom. It's pride. Jesus is saying the first step to personal happiness, the first step to our pilgrimage and coming to God is to get rid of pride. Pride is the root of all sin. Blessed are the poor in spirit, which means we must be a people who decrease so that he might increase. So that it's not our way, it's his way. We're not setting the agenda. He is the one setting the agenda. In Copenhagen in Denmark, there's this unusual statue of Jesus. After they had cast the bronze, something happened. It was either, they say, because of, of a temperature or bad casting. But, but they cast it, and all of a sudden, slowly, the head began to move forward and began to look down. Yet the, the church made the decision to leave it that way with the idea that if you're going to choose to look into the face of Jesus, you must first start by getting on your knees. That's what being poor in spirit is all about. As much as is possible, pride must be first vanquished from the heart. Poverty of spirit must be placed within. And when we've done that, and and not that we we arrive at that, that I think is probably a lifelong adjustment that is made in our life. When we've done that, we're ready to take the second step into the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, again, in the eyes of the world, this seems ridiculous. I mean, uh, we usually handle those who mourn by avoiding them. I mean, the, the, the saying says, laugh and the, and the world laughs with you, cry and you cry by yourself. We handle those who mourn by attempting to get them out of mourning, to try and cheer them up. And yet here Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn. A mourner in this sense, however, is not necessarily one who weeps, but one who shows concern or maintains spiritual sensitivity. To be a candidate for the kingdom, one must be grieved by the way things are. And when a person says, oh yeah, the world's going crazy, whatever, they're not expressing genuine grief. They're, they're giving resignation. But we as a kingdom people, we believe 
in the restoration of the world. We believe in a God who wants to set things right. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But culturally, our problem is we want victory without suffering. We want cheap grace. We want the promised land, but we don't want to to wander in the wilderness. We want resurrection, but we don't want the cross. We want God's blessing as long as it doesn't involve purging and purifying our lives. Now, the purpose is not to turn the world into a place of dark and gloom. The purpose is to point out that if we try to avoid suffering, we will never experience the heart of the Father. And we will never become truly sensitive to those who suffer. Seven years ago, a little over, I lost my father. Some of you knew my dad, and most of you know that it was devastating for me. Talk to my dad every day. Text, phone, and in an instant, he was gone. Seven years later, there's hardly a day that goes by that I don't think of him in some way and that I don't continue to mourn. But the truth is, because I have experienced that sorrow in my life, first, I have had to learn to lean into the promised comfort of the Father. And second, I can more effectively minister to those who are in sorrow. Perhaps I didn't fully understand the depth of what it is to lose somebody so close, but I do now, and as a pastor, and as a people, and as the church, to be able to understand the depth in which people find themselves in, we have this potential to care for individuals and to receive God's comfort, but I really believe this. There are times that God comforts through his people, that God comforts through your hands and through your feet, and when you're walking through those places and mourning with people, you get to be the instrument of God and the comfort in their life. You get that, right? What losses have made you more sensitive? Blessed are those who mourn for the children of brokenness. Blessed are those who mourn for our cities and their plight. Blessed are those who mourn for ignorance despite our institutions of higher learning. Blessed are those who mourn over injustice. Blessed are those who mourn for people who have hardened their hearts to sin. Blessed are those who mourn for churches that have traded discipleship for compromise. Blessed are those who mourn for our children and their children. Blessed are those who mourn for our own missed opportunities of not living in to God's call. Blessed are those who mourn. For if you mourn, there is still hope for you. It shows that you care about something greater than yourselves. In the end, it's not the mourners who are pitied, it's those who do not mourn. For unless you're able to look at suffering and able to look at the situations that people walk through and be moved to compassion, then you have not fully experienced comfort and compassion of Christ as Savior. It is then, when we have experienced that, that we comprehend a little more Jesus' teaching, blessed are they who mourn they shall be comforted. Not only is it God who comforts us, but we get to be the hand of God who comforts others. You know, this beatitude takes on special meaning in this season. In my 22 and a half years as pastor here, 
I think the last six months, we have seen more mourning as a church than we've ever experienced. Lots of different losses. Brokenness of relationships. Sinful consequences. Death of loved ones. A world that seems to push against all the things of the kingdom of God. Every one of us has something to mourn. But then come the Oh, my friends, then come these sweet words of hope. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who will humble themselves and say, not me, but you, God. Not my will, your way, God. Not my agenda, but your agenda, God. Not only are they blessed, but Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom. A kingdom that will never pass away. A kingdom that will restore the brokenness of the world. And then comes more words of Jesus, these sweet words of hope. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those whose hearts grieve, who are experiencing loss and brokenness and hurt, whose hearts recognize that humanity does its best to mess up God's creation. Not only are those who mourn blessed by God, but they are offered comfort. He wants to work in broken hearts. He wants to work in broken relationships. He wants to work in broken places. And then comes the words of Jesus, and they lift our eyes, and they lift our spirits, and we are reminded we are not alone. You are not alone. You sang the words earlier in the offertory. There is strength within our sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear. You're working in our waiting, sanctifying us. When beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You are with us in the fire and the flood, faithful forever, perfect in love. Jesus tells his disciples, and in doing so, he tells us how God wants to bless God wants to bless you. And I think that some of you this morning need to invite that first blessing. Some of you this morning need to say, Oh God, may I be poor in spirit. Oh God, I I know that sometimes I get that balance out of the way. God, less of me, more of you. And it's when God is primary and we are secondary that we really begin to see the kingdom of God at work. And I think that some of us this morning need to invite that second blessing. We're a people who are mourning something. A lost person or a lost dream, a lost relationship, a lost expectation, a lost fill in the blank. And God himself says he wants to bless you in that mourning. And he wants to bring comfort to you. But the question is, will you let him? Will you claim the blessing of God? We're going to sing that song that we sang earlier. And and as we do, if you need to claim either one of those blessings of Jesus' promise, I'm going to invite you to do something in in a moment as we sing. I'm going to invite you to just claim that promise by standing 
And whether you stand at the beginning of the song or whenever you're moved or halfway through, but you just want to say to God today, I need to claim that in my life. Now, hear me, there's no pressure to stand. If that's not where you're at right now, that's fine. But I think that there are some of us here today who need to stand and invite God to honor that promise as we commit to him and say, less of me, more of you. And I think that there's some here today who need to stand and claim the promise and say, God, I am mourning something. And I, I want to receive this promised blessing and your comfort. These are promises of God. God keeps promises. Let's sing. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. in our morning with the love that casts out fear you are working in our waiting you are working in our waiting sanctifying us when beyond our understanding Teaching us to trust your plans. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You are with us in the fire and the flood. Even when 
what the enemy means for evil. You turn it for our good. You turn it for our good and for your glory. Even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working for our good. You're working for our good and for your glory. Sing it again. Even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. You turn it for our good and for your glory. Even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working for our good. You're working for our good for your glory. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You are with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever. You're perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. You're faithful forever. Perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. Father, we, your people, come before you today and we, we ask you to honor your word. There are those of us who stand here today and we know that we wrestle with this more of you and less of us to humble ourselves to recognize that we, we're not the ones in charge. And Father, we want you to be. And so we pray that you would bless us in this effort, that we might see the kingdom and live by kingdom values and not by cultural values. We might be the people you've called us to be. We, we stand today asking your blessing, that you would be true to your promise. And Father, as others of us stand today, asking you to pour out a blessing in the midst of of hurt in the midst of mourning, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of uh, a broken relationship or missed expectation or, or, or just feeling lost or, or the list goes on and on. God, you've been with us in the midst of that mourning, but, but we just want to double down. We want to say we need you more than we have ever needed you. Would you pour out your blessing? Would you pour out your comfort? We're going to claim that promise in our life today that you are faithful over and over again and that you will give us the strength to walk through those difficult places we are not alone and that while we might mourn you might change those circumstances or not but this we know you are the God who brings comfort and hope so Lord pour out your comfort pour out your spirit Pour out yourself upon all of us and for the whole church that we might be used as your hands and feet to bring comfort to those who mourn. We might be used to be your hands and feet, to be a people who who see your kingdom come, your will be done, right in the places where we live. Father, with great hope and great joy, we hang on to your promises. You are enough and you are with us. And we go recognizing we don't go alone. Oh God, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together, amen.
and amen. Lord bless you as you go. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire.